once observed to our interfaith ministers group that there are two ways of being religious, both of which are found in every tradition and theological point of view. There is, he said, the religion of answers, and there is the religion of journey. The religion of answers believes in arriving at some incontrovertible vision of truth by which it then advocates and defends against all challenge, faith being measured by the purity and energy of one's adherence to those answers, whatever heritage they may represent. By contrast, the religion of journey considers faith to be forever unfinished, an evolving approach to life's deepest questions that constantly calls us to wider sympathy and understanding, believing that there is always more for all of us to learn, and that diversity of ideas, stories, and ritual vocabularies is an important resource in that process of learning. Now, there are evangelical Christians who have a journey interpretation of their faith in Jesus. And there are humanists who consider themselves to have a collection of established answers that are not to be improved upon by exposure to any other ideas. Whether you have an answer religion or a journey religion, is a function of the way in which you understand and practice your tradition, not which tradition it is. Those like me, who are committed to the religion of journey, share a kind of pilgrimage. We are each engaged in a lifelong odyssey of faith, the goal of which in some important sense is the same for all of us. It is the nature of that goal which I want to explore this morning, to consider what it is that draws us forward on a common journey of faith and how we might know what its destination would be and what progress for any of us would look like. This is the question which fascinated the psychologist James Fowler in his groundbreaking research on the stages of faith development. For the goal of the faith journey is not to arrive at a set of permanent truths and answers, but rather to develop the qualities of what I would call spiritual maturity. It is obvious to anyone who has any historical or international awareness that there is something that the world's most acknowledged spiritual leaders have in common, some attributes that characterize the Gandhis and the Dalai Lamas and the Mother Teresas and the Martin Luther Kings of the world, no matter what historical religious tradition they may identify with. And of course, these qualities are not limited to those who achieve wide recognition. They exist as well in French villagers who hide Jews from the Nazis, in Rwandan hotel keepers, in neighbors and teachers and elders everywhere who exemplify for us 
what it means to grow into the radical acceptance of others, the self-awareness, the active compassion and sacrificial love that are the highest expressions of any faith, including the faith of humanism. For those of us committed to the religion of journey rather than the religion of answers, the goal of faith has not to do with what we know or how fervently we believe. It has to do with the kind of persons we are becoming, with how our hopes and loyalties are shaping our actions, our relationships, and the wisdom of our hearts. Although, as Fowler points out, we are often fascinated by those special souls who exemplify spiritual maturity in a particularly evident way, the real challenge for each of us is not to become renowned saints, but rather to grow up religiously to a point where our faith is a positive and productive influence both in our own lives and upon those around us. Yet even to say this much raises the question of whether an explicitly humanist community could actually be comfortable with the very concept of spiritual maturity. Whether it would be okay to think that some people might be further along on the journey than others. Even keeping in mind that these qualities are not a measure of anyone's inherent worth as a person, any more than physical maturity, emotional maturity, or intellectual maturity determines our inherent value as human beings. Still, as the Victorian poet William Watson reminds us, there are in life some things worth aspiring to, the things that are more excellent. Every point on the spiritual path has its own validity, but there is a direction to it. If we are doing it right, we progress, not toward finality and certainty, but nearer to those qualities that fascinate and inspire us when we find them in others. So I want to suggest that, in fact, there is a quality of spiritual maturity which is distinct from physical, emotional, or intellectual maturity. It involves attributes of compassion, integrity, awareness, gratitude, connection, humility, acceptance, and trust. People who are spiritually mature are engaging and challenging to be around. They are at peace with themselves, and by their presence they call others to become their own best selves. This quality has been called by many names. Enlightenment, Buddha nature, Christ-likeness, wisdom. But every culture and every religious tradition recognizes it. And I would argue that the fundamental purpose of a religious community is to cultivate spiritual maturity in its members. A given congregation may produce astonishingly beautiful buildings or music or admirable works of charity or even social movements that sweep across the culture. But 
if its own members remain shallow, angry, selfish, unhappy, or oppressive people, then it has failed in its most essential task. A community of people intentionally growing toward authentic spiritual maturity will almost necessarily call forth beauty, generosity, and transformation as a result of their work together, but these are byproducts. And I refuse to accept the proposition that the achievement of spiritual maturity is less acceptable to me as a humanist or to us as a humanist inclusive community than it is to any other theological cohort. If it is true that there is a continuum of spiritual maturity, just as there is of physical or intellectual or emotional maturity in each of our lives, then an important part of the church's task is to help each of us to take responsibility for our own process of growth. Like these other dimensions, spiritual maturity unfolds in three interconnected but distinct ways. Let me lay them out for you briefly. First, we all undergo a process of organic growth with a developmental trajectory that takes us through successive stages of competence. We learn to walk and talk, to use abstract symbols and to take turns. We go through puberty, make affiliations with other people and groups, learn the patterns of reasoning that are relevant to our environment. This evolutionary process happens almost unnoticed, automatically, like a seed sprouting, unless something goes very wrong. At the same time, we may also have identifiable critical experiences that suddenly transform our physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual worlds. When someone close to you dies, or you discover that a dearly held belief isn't true, when a certain teacher or book opens up a whole new horizon of the mind, when you become pregnant, in such moments, things change quickly and are never the same again. Thirdly, it is also possible to nurture our development in any of these dimensions by deliberate practice. You can train to run a marathon. You can work with a therapist to resolve emotional issues. You can read books or take courses on various topics to cultivate your mind. There is also an extensive tradition of practices for nurturing your spiritual maturity. And I would suggest that much as school is a place for the intentional pursuit of intellectual maturity, so religious community is a place where the bottom line is the goal of increasing spiritual maturity. This is the institutional purpose that is not measured by attendance figures and participation records and financial giving. Are people actually growing, deepening, becoming more spiritually mature as a result of anything that our congregations are doing? School may actually be a helpful analogy, I think, 
For there are many secondary purposes served by educational institutions also. At its best, the experience of school involves all our developmental dimensions, and we find the process engaging as well as challenging. It is good to make friends and admire teachers, to go to the dances and join the clubs and cheer for the teams and be in the class picture. It is sad and a source of concern when any of these things doesn't happen. But none of it really means anything if you're not actually learning something. And learning, as we know, to our cost these days is not measured by attendance records. It is not even a function of the student's reported enjoyment of a particular class. Indeed, in the long run, I suspect that we tend to remember most fondly the classes in which we really learned the most, but often enough they are not the ones we had the most fun in at the time. So it's a delicate balance. Obviously, if no one shows up at all, then no one is learning anything from a given class. And if the students dislike it because the material is boring or badly presented or because they are afraid of the teacher, they probably won't learn much either. But if they complain that the material is difficult to master and yet they do master it, don't we tend to say, well, that's the nature of school? Sometimes intentional intellectual development is hard work, and we are not here just to have a good time. In fact, if the educational process works as it should, eventually we take responsibility for our own learning and actually seek out challenging things to learn and feel short-changed if something that was supposed to be a learning opportunity doesn't make us stretch at least a little bit. I want to suggest that the same dynamic is true of religious communities, if we approach it right. Where school is about smart, religious community is about wise. It's great to find a sense of belonging and opportunities to make the world better and beautiful words and music and space. But when we gather as a congregation, if we are not about the business of becoming more spiritually grown up together, then the institution is not fulfilling its most basic function, and all these other things are just distractions. Of course, the first challenge that confronts us as liberals is to define what spiritual maturity looks like in our worldview. It is not about believing a particular set of ideas that we are told, that's for certain, or accepting the authority of anything but evidence, reality, and the requirements of our conscience. Indeed, I would suggest that two of the qualities incorporated in spiritual maturity are these, the commitment to abide by logic and facts rather than wishful thinking, and the capacity to hold a position of conscience even in the face of disagreement or challenge by others. In my experience, these qualities do not necessarily correlate with the length of one's membership in a religious community. 
I have met people who were deeply involved in institutional leadership in their congregations or denominational programs or in social activism who seemed to me not at all wise or kind or balanced, who had no resilience in the face of challenges and very little patience or generosity toward others. Some of them were very smart people in many ways, but they had not found that peace at the core of themselves that is the soil in which wisdom grows. By the same token, I have encountered people who were not extensively educated or socially privileged, in whom I experienced a calm energy and joyful commitment to the world that just made me want to be around them. I expect we have all met folks like that. In the same way that our bodies grow toward equilibrium and health, and our minds demand to know the truth about the world, and our hearts yearn for authentic, reciprocal love, so I think we also have an attraction toward spiritual adulthood. Some part of us always wants to be more courageous and generous, more compassionate and self-aware, more at peace and at home in the world than we yet are. At times, we mistake that longing for a signal that something is wrong within us, but it's not. That impulse is the call toward spiritual maturity, and it is, in fact, an indication that our humanity is unfolding as it should, that we are preparing to blossom fully into the unique person that each of us has the capacity to become. Becoming a spiritual grown-up means putting away childish things like grudges and victimhood, like selfishness and the desire to be protected from the consequences of our actions, like greed and self-righteousness and the search for immortality and the hunger to make everyone else do as we command. Spiritual maturity means taking responsibility for our own behavior and our own boundaries, for the results of all that we say and do, whether intended or unintended, and for the future that we help to create. It means enlarging our capacity to tolerate ambiguity, to repent and to forgive, to appreciate the uses of metaphor and the power of ritual, to celebrate, and to mourn. It means remembering our finitude and our mortality, not in terror, but with gratitude for the gift of life. It means discovering and embracing our own particular place in the interconnected web of being and honoring the diversity of all else that makes up that web. It means having ethical principles that we are clear about, as well as a vast compassion for all the pain that is in the world. It means an openness to beauty, whether in art or in nature, whether physical delight or intellectual elegance, emotional catharsis or moral honor. Spiritual maturity means being able to offer uncorrupted leadership when it is your turn to lead, 
and to be a loyal but not uncritical follower when that is your role. It means having the ability not to tell everything you know just to show how much you know, while at the same time being willing to speak truth to power as needed, even when that is an uncomfortable conversation. Spiritual maturity begins with an inner-centeredness, calm and peaceful, which does not mean that we have solved all our own problems and can now look down upon the rest of the world. Rather, it means that we have stopped pretending that the world is other than it is, that we are other than we are, and have accepted that the universe is not mine or yours to run, but a gift that is part practical joke in which we all share. My list also includes several concepts taken from the world's various religious heritages. From classical Greek philosophy, the idea of sophrosyne, self-awareness in the service of intention and good personal boundaries. From certain Native American traditions, the phrase metakwiasin, literally all my relatives, lifting up a sense of connection to and responsibility for all creatures and for the earth as a living system. From Buddhism comes Tonglen, the capacity to be present to, absorb, and creatively transform suffering, both our own and others. From Judaism, the notion of teshuva, the willingness to repent of our wrong choices and directions, to change and turn back toward a different way that offers greater wholeness. The concept of Islam as submission to the realities of a world that is often other than our desires would have it, a renouncing of denial and wishful thinking. And from the Christian mystical tradition, the discipline of memento mori, the ongoing awareness and acceptance of death as our common destiny. Now, friends, be clear that what I describe is the state of being to which I aspire, not one that I have by any means attained. I know what it looks like because I have seen it demonstrated by people in the communities I have been privileged to serve. They have shown it to me in glimpses and flashes at moments when they perhaps least knew they were instructing others about the nature of spiritual maturity. I know what it looks like because I have seen the transformations in so many lives, the critical decisions of high courage that changed everything, and the years of patient, sacrificial practice that have left some of those folks just translucent to the light of the human spirit. I want my life to be like that. And there is nowhere else to learn it but in communities like this one. I know of no scale by which to measure it, no cookbook, no standardized test. Yet I persist in believing it to be true that the soul hath lifted moments above the drift of days when life's great meaning breaketh in sunrise on our ways, and that those moments are precious in themselves 
as well as clues to help us along the path toward the more fully human and mature person that our best selves yearn to be. This is what makes us truly brothers and sisters, that we are engaged in the task of growing up together, helping each other as best we can, often without even knowing that's what we're doing. Even if we can't measure it, even if the megachurches can't bottle it and sell it, this is what we are about. And it is the most important, most unendingly fascinating, and most real enterprise that I know. <laughs>